So this is our final week in the parables, and appropriately, we are going to take a look at a parable that deals with the end times judgment. So in this parable, Jesus is teaching in parable form something that describes something that will take place in the future, which is one of the judgments. Now, there is a day of future reckoning for all people, which is known as judgment. Every single person will be judged. The content of that judgment will be based upon our faith in the Lord. So now I want to start off in in uh, Matthew 25, verse 31. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now, the timing of this specific judgment is actually debated by some, and you'll probably notice in your ESV Bible, it says the final judgment. Well, it seems to be clear to me that this actually isn't the final judgment, okay? There's a series of judgments that will happen during the end times, and uh, but I believe this is the judgment at the end of the tribulation before the millennial reign of Jesus here on earth. And mainly, the reason why I believe this is because it says, when the Son of Man comes in glory. Now, most of you know that like we talk about Jesus coming back, Jesus's return, but Jesus's return is kind of in some senses twofold because the next thing that we're waiting for to happen is actually the rapture of the church. So to paint a picture for you, if the rapture were to happen right now today, all the believers would be taken up into heaven and then there would be a seven year time of tribulation on the earth. Now, during that seven-year tribulation period, people will actually become Christians because you see that there is a persecution on Christians during the tribulation. People will actually become Christians during that time. They'll be persecuted during that time. At the end of that time, that's when the glorious appearing, appearing happens. That's actually when Jesus second his, his actual second coming down to this earth. So his second coming is kind of twofold in some senses, but that is kind of like a discussion for another day. And actually we're going to get into that a little bit this winter, because as I've been praying about it, I think we're going to study the book of Daniel and the book of Daniel towards the end, well, midway towards the end gets really dicey and talks a lot about end times type of stuff. So you end times type people that are interested in that stuff, rejoice because this winter, it's going to be a long winter, right? And we're going to be studying some good end time stuff. So this specific parable is not the judgment of all people of all time. A study of the end times will actually reveal that. This is a judgment of the people during the tribulation period, mainly the Gentiles that populated the tribulation. So essentially, if you're a believer right now, Okay, in today, if you're a believer, you will not be part of this judgment. Your judgment will actually come when the rapture of the church happens. So you will already be judged at this point. So let's take a closer look at this judgment. Just because you're not involved in it doesn't mean you're not judged in the same way. So let's look. In verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit. Then they will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. There's three things that I want to point out. This can be kind of confusing, but it's pretty easy to explain in a sense. And there's three things that I want to point out about this judgment. And the first is there is an emphasis on works to prove faith. Now, in this parable, Jesus says, Come with me, for I come with me to those that first group. For I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty, that whole thing. Okay? He says, You're gonna come with me. And then he says to the other group, depart from me. So the one group he says, Come with me, you did all these good deeds. And the other groups, he says, Depart from me, you did not do these things. So this on first read, you would think, is that salvation by works? I've been coming to this church a long time, and I never heard that. I always heard that you're supposed to trust in Jesus, trust that he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins, and three days later, he rose from the grave, and if you believe that, you have eternal life. It has nothing to do with good works, right? That's what you've heard, and that is true. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says this, for it is by grace that you've been saved through, <laughs> excuse me, through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, so that no, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So that passage tells us that is truly only by faith that a person is saved. It's a gift of God. Our faith is actually a gift of God. Salvation is actually a gift of God. Trusting in Jesus is actually a gift of God. When we do that, when we trust in Jesus, we're saved. The scripture tells us so no one can boast. No one can say, I'm better than you. I worked harder than you. That's why I'm a Christian and you're not. You can't say any of those things. It's all by faith. But here's what happens. If we read on in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what the scripture is telling us is we're saved through faith, but God desires us, and proof of our faith is us walking in the good works that God has prepared for us. Now, this is where it kind of gets real for Christians, because the Lord has called us to do good. I mean, granted, we can't do everything, right? You might, have remember, you might, might remember me quoting Ronald Reagan, right? He said, you can't do everything, but some, every person can do something, right? Okay, so you're not called to do everything. You're not going to solve the world's problems and do good for every person, but you are called to actually do good works that God prepared for you to do. 
Now, many Christians are not doing this. And guess what happens? When you're not doing this, you start to feel unfulfilled. You start to feel bummed out. You start to feel depressed. And you start to feel like you have no purpose. And it's because you neglect this, actually walking in the works that God desires you to do. Maybe that's you. You're a believer and you're not fulfilled. And you find yourself very unhappy. So you look to the world and say, well, what will make me happy? We feel those feelings. We naturally try to fill the void. We try to fill the void with things like fun, pleasure, stuff, exciting adventures. And then we get confused because we do all those things and we're still not happy. Have you ever been there before? You, you go somewhere, do something, have something, achieve something, and you're like, I thought that was going to make me happy. And then it didn't. Well, there's a reason for that. Those things are not designed to fulfill you like the fulfillment we receive from God when we walk in the good works. So what I'm saying to you is this. There's many Christians out there, and you might be one of them, that are Christians. You're saved. You're going to heaven. But you're not living for your purpose. And now all of a sudden, you don't feel that joy. You don't feel that happiness. You don't feel that fulfillment because... In all honesty, you're really not walking in the works that God has prepared for you. So here's a reason. You're not living out what God prepared for you to do. One purpose of our Christian life is helping and serving other people. And essentially, when we do that, we're actually serving Jesus. That's why he said to both groups, right? He said to the first group, you did these things to me. When you helped other people, when you assisted them, when you clothed them, when you fed them, when you helped them in spiritual ways, you did it to the Lord. And that's why he said to the group that didn't do anything, he said, you didn't do anything. So let's look back at the passage. During the time of the tribulation here on earth, people will become believers and proof of their faith will be their works and Jesus will use that proof to judge them. That's what this passage is teaching. Works do not save a person, but works prove our faith. Now, if we go to the book of James, that's what James talks about. Some people will get confused because they'll say, oh, you know, James says that uh, faith without works is dead. So it must be faith plus works equals salvation. No, that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about human perspective, and he's saying, you know what? You and I show our faith by our works. You know what? We can say all day long to people, I have faith in Jesus, I have faith in Jesus, I have faith in Jesus. But if we don't do anything to prove that faith before those people, our faith to them is useless. They're like, oh, you're, it's good. I, I see you going to church, but that's about all I see, okay? That's what people look and see. So our works actually prove our faith. But here's what happens then, because this gets a little deeper. Christians start to look at other Christians and judge their works. What we have to remember as believers is not to judge other Christians. That's Jesus' job, right? That's Jesus' job. Sometimes we look at other Christians and say, they should do this or they should do that. Here's what you need to do. If you're falling into that trap, you need to ask yourself, what good am I doing? Okay, 
Don't point your finger out. You know that old saying, when you have one finger pointing out, what? You got three more pointing back, and we don't know what to do with the thumb, right? Okay, so here's the thing. You're pointing the finger at other people when you really should be asking yourself the question, what good am I doing? But then we have this other issue, too, because as Christians, we're supposed to hold each other accountable and encourage and inspire each other. So what do we do? Well, here's a question you can ask yourself. How can I inspire my fellow Christians to do good works? How can I inspire them? Maybe it's just doing good works. And people see the joy that you have when you're doing those good works. And they're like, I want that joy. And, and, and they ask you, why do you have that joy? It's like, well, because I try to live myself not me-focused, but I try to live my life Jesus-focused. The second thing I want to point out from this passage is, all excuses before God fail. When we stand before the Lord, all excuses fail. When did we see you? That's what the both groups said. When did we see you, Jesus? Notice both groups asked this because the sheep or the faith group had faith in the Lord and the natural outworking of their faith was a desire to act in their faith. But obviously, if Jesus were right there in front of most people, they would help him. That's why they said, when do we see you? If Jesus was right here, if Jesus walked up, I'm sure everybody here would be like, Jesus, what do you need? Okay, you need a bagel? You need a cup of coffee? Jesus, I'll help you out. Okay, Jesus, I'm here for you. That's how, that's how we would look at life because it's Jesus right before us. So most people would help. And you know what? This gets tricky in our culture. This gets very tricky in our culture because today we've been sold many lies, but one of the lies is we should not take care of other people. We should look out for ourselves, okay? And this is, this is obviously politically charged type of things as well. We should look out for ourselves. We shouldn't take care of other people. They should take care of themselves. Well, you know what? The unfortunate truth is there are some people that can't. And they need us. You know what? I'll say in some cases where people are able to work, they can earn, they can achieve, they can do things, but they don't feel like it or they're just taking advantage of the system type of thing. Those are not the people we're looking to help, okay? We're looking to help the, the people that can't help themselves. That's who we're looking to help. We're looking to help the people that can't help themselves. And you know what? Most of the time, we look at it and we say, well, you know what? What can I really do? Or, or we just look at the physical. And you realize this. I mean, we live in a great community. And we live in a community where the greatest needs aren't necessarily hunger, right? The greatest needs aren't necessarily financial assistance. They're not physical needs at all. But actually, what they are are our spiritual needs. Now, you come here each Sunday and you hear from God's word, and hopefully you're filled with God's word. We try to teach as much as we can so that you're filled with God's word. Well, guess what? Well, guess what? Maybe now God is calling you to bring that word to other people, to help other people understand what you actually believe, to not remain silent anymore when religious conversation comes up or faith comes up or philosophies of life 
maybe, just maybe, you're placed in that workplace, in that home, in that school, in that area, to be the light that Jesus desires you to be. Because if we're brutally honest, we realize that most people are not going to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to go hear about the Lord today. We live in a post-Christian generation. And if we don't get the word out, they might not hear the word. So the group that did nothing, remember that group that did nothing? They were the unbelievers. And they said, when did we, when did we see you? As an excuse. They were standing before judgment, before Jesus, because at the time of judgment, there's going to be no debate whether Jesus was real or not, okay? For the unbeliever or the believer. There's no debate. They're like, oh, no, like this was real? Like all the things my Christian friends were talking about, all the things the Bible was teaching, this is real? So there's going to be no excuse, there's going to be no excuse. So they said, when did they see you? Basically saying, hey, Jesus, if you really needed help, I would have helped you. Now I know who you are. I w you know what I mean? This is what's going to be going on. So this was an excuse covering up their lack of faith, their selfish living, and the fact that they did not know who Jesus even was. They're the goats in the parable. In this parable, they're the goats. On the other hand, the faith group, the sheep, they did help, but they still asked, when do we see you? Now, theirs was an honest question, and it was more along the lines of, wait, we missed you when you were there? It was not an excuse. They were just following through with what they knew to be true, and they followed through. So they saw somebody in need, and they helped. So let's insert ourselves. When we see people in need, when we see people that have spiritual needs, maybe physical needs but spiritual needs, are we there to help? When we see people hurting, are we there to help? Are we the Christians that are there to come to the side of other people? And let me just tell you this. Remember before I said nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something? Okay? That's what the church is all about. All of you are placed here amongst one another to help one another. But not only that, then go help other people. I mean, think of the life of Jesus. Jesus could have helped everybody, but what did he do? He spent most of his time with the 12 disciples, building into them, and then what did they do? They went out and built into other people, and then they went out and built into other people. And now here we are 2,000 plus years later, with groups of Christians all over the world doing things for the Lord. You know what? Sometimes we fall into the trap of doing things for others because we want to please them or look good. If you do that, let me just tell you this. You will be let down. If you are doing things to please other people or to make yourself look good, you will be let down because inevitably somebody's not going to thank you. They're not going to say, hey, you're the most amazing person. They're not going to praise you. Here's a little trick, okay? Here's something you need to learn very early on. Do it for the Lord and you won't be let down. Do it for the Lord because sometimes we look at people and say, well, you know what? That person needs help, but, you know, they're, they're, they're like, they're not appreciative. Or, you know what, they don't deserve help. You know what, they did these wrong things. They made their bed. They need to sleep in it. 
that's, that's the way I'm going to look at that person. And we start to do things like that. We start to justify why we don't want to help and assist other people. But let me just tell you, do it for the Lord, and you won't be let down. Your motives become more pure, because now you're like, you know what? I'm doing this for the Lord. That's why I'm doing this. I'm doing this to please him. And if he shows us another way of helping or shows us that, you know what, enough's enough. Don't continue helping that person or don't continue in the thing that you're doing right now. Then you take heed and realize it's the Lord helping you and steering you to go and help and do in another area. Now, the third and final thing I want to point out, and we also dealt with last week, is eternal separation is a result of rejection. It says in verse 46, the last verse of the parable, it says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the fact that this group had no good works was actually an illustration of a deeper issue, which they had no faith. And in other words, no faith in Jesus is rejection of Jesus, okay? So the group that had no good works, I mean, technically speaking, when we go back to Isaiah, even good works apart from Christ are dirty rags in the sight of God. So basically, they were really not even capable of doing good works because they had no faith in Jesus. They didn't trust Jesus. So Jesus says this, you're either for me or against me. Okay, there's no neutral ground. You get that? So if you meet somebody and they're like, oh, you know, I believe there's a God and, you know, I, I do nice things for people and stuff. And you're like, what do you do with Jesus? Well, he was just a guy. Um, you know, he was a very important guy, you know, very historical. Somebody to be admired, but I don't believe he was God. You know what the scriptures tell us? You're either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground, okay? If you're not willing to admit Jesus is who he said he was, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Savior, you're against him. It's just plain and simple. That's what the scriptures teach. This morning, as believers, we observe communion. And we observe communion mostly to remember who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives how he laid down his life to pay the price for our sins, how he rose from the grave to show that he actually could have victory over sin and death and Satan. So this morning, as we observe communion, we're remembering the salvation that we had. That's not by any work, but it's by faith. But as believers, when we observe communion, it is a reminder for us to look at our own lives. That's what 1 Corinthians tells us, to look and evaluate at our own lives, which direction we're going. You know what? Maybe you're a Christian, and, and you're, just, you're just happy with being a Christian and happy doing nothing for the Lord. Okay? Well, the truth is, is that's the wrong way to go. Okay? You need to be focused in on what the Lord has called you to do. Your life is not to be lived for yourself. It's to be lived for the Lord. So maybe the direction that you're going in is self, self, self. And maybe this morning, as we observe communion, maybe something you have to look at is say, you know what? I'm a pretty selfish person. And maybe other people around you wouldn't say like, oh, they're the most selfish person I ever met. So you're hiding it pretty good. But you might really know deep down, I'm pretty selfish. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we're all pretty selfish, right? 
So this is a time for us to say, you know what, Lord, I want to be selfless. I want to put you first and what you desire me to do before my own desires. But maybe for you this morning, maybe it's not one of those things. Maybe you are doing pretty well with serving other people, serving other people for the sake of Christ. But maybe it's something else. Maybe you're holding on to some sort of sin in your life that's really entangling you. It's really kind of making it so that you are not pleasing the Lord. Well, communion is the time for you to put that sin at the foot of the cross. So I'd like to invite you to grab uh, the communion elements. And I'm going to give you a few moments just to, you know, with your, with your thoughts with the Lord, pray to him for just a few moments, and then we'll partake together. After supper, Jesus took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Bow with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. I'm thankful, Lord, that you love us and you serve us. I pray as believers, as those who trust in you by faith, I pray that that faith inspires us to do your work. Lord, we know that when we follow after you, when we serve you, when we do things for the least of these, it's as if we're doing them right to you. Lord, we know that has a huge benefit on the spread of the gospel message out to other people, but we also realize there's a huge benefit for our everyday lives, Lord, because we know that we'll never be fulfilled in this life if we're not living for you, if we're not walking in those good deeds that you prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So I pray as believers that we do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.